in my opinion, one of the most passive forms of real estate ownership out there. So, I mean, we don't even, we don't have property management. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Neil Walger. Neil, how are you doing today? Doing great, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you joining us. And a little bit about Neil, uh, he comes from a uh, military background. So he was a life as a military pilot in aviation. So we'll have to talk a little bit about flying a plane. That sounds really fun. Uh, did you fly the plane or were you, uh, what, what, part of, what part of that were you? Uh, I was, I was a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. You were the pilot. Okay, sweet. Uh, to leave in the, so you, you did that, um, and then, uh, embarked on a new career path in entrepreneurship and real estate. So Neil really knows how to, uh, step out of his comfort zone, how to push it, how to go into the unknown. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk about a topic that we don't talk a lot about on this show. I've had a couple of guests, uh, but I think Neil's going to bring some different um, excitement into that too. So we're going to talk a lot about the commercial real estate and he's going to talk to us about different strategies and that. So I think that's really cool because uh, we hear mostly from multifamily people, some single family people. So, um, so with that said, Neil, you know, you've, you've done a lot of different things. Take us through kind of your background and then what your focus is today. Yeah. Um, no, thanks for the, the intro there. Uh, you know, ultimately Bay area native grew up just outside of San Francisco. I uh, ended up wanting out of the, uh, the suburban life as a 18 year old. So <laughs> ended up going to the air force Academy and then flew the, the C-130 Hercules for about just shy of 10 years, full time with the air force. And then nice. a couple more years, uh, actually in the Navy. So did the the okay. whole switch over, same plane, better looking uniforms, and <laughs> uh, just a little did bit you, of a change. Did, of did you ever get to take off off of uh, off of a ship? No, no. That so the C one thirty. Some some funny trivia. The C one thirty. They've done it once, and it was in the fifties, uh, and they did some basically early early uh, airframe trials, and they they took one out there, but it turns out it can only land and take off on a carrier if it's pretty much empty, which isn't super practical for a cargo yeah. plane. Yeah. So <laughs> they decided, ah, we're, we'll stick to land here after that. Perfect. That's cool. That, that It looks like really fun to take off off of a ship and to land. <laughs> right. <laughs> Probably a little nerve wracking the first couple of times you do it. But, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It looks like looks like a little bit of a little bit of fun. I don't think I'll be probably experiencing that in my lifetime, but but probably not me either. <laughs> but we, we had some fun stuff. Uh, I, a notable spot is I actually got to land on uh, a Rota, uh, which is an island just off of Guam, R-O-T-A, and they have a, uh, a crushed coral runway. Um, just wow. the, 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 you know, ingredient that is found plentiful on the island. And the entire runway is, it's blisteringly white. And when the sun hits it, I mean, you got to wear like two sets of sunglasses, but you can actually land a plane on crushed coral. So that was pretty cool. A fun time. <laughs> That's good. Um, so from, from military then full time uh, to what was the next step? Was it immediately into entrepreneurship? 
Yeah, I mean, a, a, a form of it. So I wanted out of the, you know, kind of big government, big military side and, you know, the, the whole idea of flying commercial, you know, Delta from Oakland to Omaha didn't really move the needle in terms of, you know, kind of what I wanted on a personal level from a, you know, career perspective, I guess you could say. So yeah. I kind of took the plunge in the opposite direction and, and joined a startup as <laughs> all, all people craving something new uh, uh, should try at least once in their life. And yep. uh, it was neat though. It was, a, it was a renewable energy startup down in SoCal. I was working business development. We had this um, effectively this pathway of converting plant and wood waste into <laughs> renewable fuels and this black carbon-based material called biochar that I was working business development in to work with growers and horticulturists and soil blenders to really find economic ways to incorporate this into, you know, really different forms of agriculture and horticulture. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, the, and then, uh, and then from there, was it then into yeah. the real estate? Yeah. The, the, the company ended up running out of funding uh, yeah. and it was, it was a, a good time to um, effectively move back up to the NorCal where I'd been wanting to head back for some time, uh, got a place in the city in San Francisco and somewhat by chance, um, you know, connected with the husband of a, a family friend that we had had for a long time who had built up uh, really this equity focused commercial real estate investment firm, a small group, you know, about eight or nine people. But ultimately um, the model was bring equity and bring investor relationships in a partnership form to JV with operators or developers who typically had a skill set or were growing faster than their organic equity could kind of, you know, fund deals. Um, so we, we were effectively the investor arm on a JV basis, project by project with a number of different specialist operators. So we, Gotcha. We had, you know, one group, for instance, that just did class B multifamily turnarounds in Northeast Atlanta. We had another one that did, you know, multi-tenant retail in Dallas, Fort Worth. Another one that did, you know, senior assisted living in, in uh, the Northern California areas. So these very specific specialties that we would effectively partner and leverage, leverage that experience. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you see kind of some of that, but I, I, I love that, uh, little business niche right there to yeah. partner, especially because they're partnering with specific areas, specific geographical areas, companies that are focused mm -hmm. on different things. And so you're really diversifying yet you're diversifying in a, in a way where you're not just spreading yourself too thin because you're partnering yep. with experts in that you know, diversification in class. those different projects. Cool. Yeah. 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 I've, the longer I've been in real estate, you know, I'm coming up on like seven or eight years now that the more time I've spent in that, the more time I believe, you know, being a specialist is more important than being a generalist yeah. and, you know, find something specialized in it and then find what you don't do well and, and partner or bring someone to the table that can kind of fill that need in a, a very effective way. 100% agree. I used to want to do everything that oh, I'm going to own multifamily and uh, industrial and retail and office and yeah. self-storage and all this kind of stuff. And I'm going to have it all. And now I, I kind of do but I partner, do the same type of thing. Exactly. I partner with the right people. And, you know, we're, we're, I was telling you before, I mean, we're, we're going to be taking down some 
uh, different commercial space than we've never taken down before, but we're partnering yep. very strategically with the right people. And I think that's so important. So yeah, that's, that's cool. So, um, so you worked, did you work for, uh, this, this person then? Yeah. Yeah. So we worked for him, ended up um, starting off in operations and after four years was actually, uh, fully running the company. So, um, you know, had really, uh, you know, progressed quickly on that side and, you know, it was neat because our specialty was, our specialty was raising money for the right deals, but also being able to underwrite the deals, you know, look under the hood, understand the pro formas, the underwriting, yeah. the assumptions, yeah. more so understanding the teams that we were working with. And through that process, one of the groups we worked with kind of in the early stage of their growth trajectory was, was Mag Capital Partners. And, you know, really, I, I love the team. I love the model um, and their, their specialty. Uh, well, now I can say our specialty because I had a chance to join full time about two and a half years ago is really a single tenant net leased industrial real estate. Um, so a, a very specific niche. Um, these are operational real estate manufacturing tenants in the Midwest uh, and a very, you know, kind of repeatable specific uh, investment niche that we've carved out and, you know, in my opinion, do quite well. All right. So single tenant net leased, explain that so our listeners understand what exactly that means. And you're talking in, in the industrial space. Sure. Um, so just to, you know, maybe from a comparative basis, I know a lot of your listeners have experience say in multifamily. Um, so I'll do a little, you know, back and forth comparison when we look at how this industrial space maybe differs and, and how it's, it's the same in a lot of ways from the multifamily side. Perfect. You know, on the multifamily side, an investor or an investment group is going to, you know, effectively you have money coming in through rents and then you have a somewhat complicated set of expenses and those expenses, you know, everything from, you know, utility co-pays to taxes, to insurance, all these things are the responsibility of the investment group typically, because you're just, you're not going to be able to get your renters to pay for their own, you know, share of the property tax. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the industrial side, it's different. Um, in the industrial side, the norm is, especially for a single tenant property, when you have a single manufacturing firm, is the way the leases are structured, they're absolutely triple net. And what that means is the tenant is going to pay their own property taxes directly. They're going to pay their own insurance on the property, and that includes deductibles and premiums. Uh, they're going to include uh, pay their own utilities. Uh, and even one step further, they're going to pay their own building upkeep and maintenance. So that even, even a roof replacement, for instance, the tenant's going to pay for their own roof. They're going to pay for any expansions. They're going to pay for concrete repairs, new paint, heating and air. I mean, literally uh, nearly every expense associated with owning that real estate is going to be paid by your tenant through that structure of an absolute triple net lease. So we're talking triple net, like to the fullest. They are they are basically owners of the building without owning the, the real estate. I mean, they're paying, they're paying everything. They're, I, absolutely. I'm assuming like it, would a roof, would they pay for the whole roof or do you prorate that? Or how does that work? Let's say the roof is already 10 years old. And, yeah. and so year 20, year 20, 10 years later, the roof needs to be replaced. Are they paying for the whole thing or would they pay for half of it? They're, they're paying for the whole thing, but the, you have to look at the term of the lease, right? Um, so, I mean, we're typically signing 20-year leases. 
usually with two 10-year extensions. So, I mean, these companies really, as long as their business model works, um, you know, these are, are typically mission critical locations for the tenants mm-hmm. and their intention by signing that long-term lease, by accepting the responsibilities that come with that triple net factor, they, they are really indicating both, you know, through their operational decisions and through their contractual ones that they plan to stay in that location continue producing whatever it is they're producing for the long haul there. How easy is it for them to get out of the lease? Nearly impossible. <laughs> um, but that's, I mean, really it's, it's a two-way street, right? Um, and so the way, the way we're acquiring these properties is through sale leaseback. So typically we are buying real estate from owner occupied um, sellers. So effect, effectively, imagine you have a, a company making widgets for the automotive uh, industry, right? Yeah. If, if this company, we'll call it Widgets Incorporated, Widgets operates and, and produces um, widgets in this piece of real estate and they own the building as well, right? What, what typically will happen is as a form of refinancing, as a form of effectively drawing out capital, sometimes these uh, widget companies will sell the real estate we will negotiate the price of that building. And then simultaneously, we will negotiate the terms of a brand new long-term triple net lease. So that lease is really the securitization centered around the value of that real estate that they just sold to us. Uh, and so for that reason, it needs to be very, very tight contractually to allow basically us to have the security of that cash flow, the security of that yield, which is why we bought the real estate at that price to begin with. Gotcha. And so it's a, it's a typically a tenant that's already there. They've got an established business. They've maybe been running it for five, 10, maybe even longer, <clears throat> but now they need some sort of capital infusion. They're expanding, they're develop, they develop something new, whatever it might be. Is that typically what's, what's going on? Yeah, it can be for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, there's benefits on a sale leaseback side, a number of balance sheet reasons, uh, favorable tax treatment, as yeah. opposed to taking a mortgage on real estate you own. A mortgage, you're only going to be able to basically, you know, take debt roughly to about 70% of the value of that real estate. If you do a sale leaseback, you can get 100%. And, and quite often it's tied it with- up some credit too. It does. Yeah. And on a balance sheet perspective, you know, a mortgage counts as a long-term liability, a long-term lease obligation is viewed differently on that balance sheet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a number of of reasons why they do it, but effectively, you know, usually it boils down to, they believe they have a, a higher and greater um, source of use for those funds tied up in the real estate that they can reinvest into the company basically to get a better internal ROI on those funds. Yeah. And a lot of companies do this. This isn't just like your mom and pop business. that's like, Oh, we need some cash right now. There's a lot of big companies that do this uh, same type of thing. Yep. Yeah. And they, they form it. I mean, really we view it as a form of alternative financing. So they are, you know, viewing this as one of several different tools in their toolkit on how to, whether they take out lines of credit, whether they take on, you know, new mortgages, corporate debt, uh, you know, they all have their pros and cons. And this is just one other tool that they can use to further grow the company in a way that makes sense for them. 
So what's your management then? So what you got this property, you negotiated everything, everything's all set, right? We, I got, yeah. we have the, the lease term signed, we're all good. And now it's operations time. What yep. is your company's job for operations? Because it's triple net. Do, what do you do? Yeah, it's, it's uh, in my opinion, one of the most passive forms of real estate ownership out there. So, I mean, we don't even, we don't have property management. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the biggest thing that we're doing is monitoring continued tenant credit. So there's most of the work on these deals is done long in advance of ever buying it. So you're negotiating purchase and sale agreements, you're negotiating the lease. I mean, that process can take six months very commonly. Um, you know, and you're doing a very deep dive into the credit worthiness of the tenant because that effectively is your securitization on that cash flow from the lease. So, and then once we own it, typically the terms of that lease will require the tenant to submit quarterly financial statements to us. So we actually have an internal credit team and we are reviewing the ongoing effectively credit flow of that company. We're saying, hey, are they growing? If they're growing, are they doing it in a sustainable way? Are they, are revenues dropping or are they, you know, losing profitability? If so, you know, we, we watch for trends and if it continues a little bit, then we have the ability uh, from a management side to kind of come in, start a conversation early, start looking at, hey, what's going on? And, you know, start looking at really options before we get pinned against a wall, uh, you know, with just a notice of default. So, you know, and, and I will caveat, we've been fortunate in our corporate, uh, in our company's history, uh, coming up on seven years, we've never, never lost a tenant. We've never had a tenant default on a lease. Um, so really these are, these are high private credit tenants with strong credit histories in a way that, you know, has proven successful for the business model. When, when you have, if you had it, you, you haven't, but let's just say we go through a, a big, huge recession and, and yeah. a, a few of these tenants struggle and is, what's your, what's your recourse? Can you, is there something written in the lease that says if you don't maintain certain financials that we can just boot you? Yeah. So, I mean, the only way a tenant can legally get out of a lease is under either chapter 11 or chapter seven bankruptcy. So, you know, basically a judge has to effectively give them permission to contractually get out of that lease contract. So one of the, I mean, one of the most important parts about the due diligence piece on this asset class is not only looking for strong tenant credit, but it's also looking at unit level profitability. And what I mean by that is, you know, typically most of our tenants have multiple locations, right? So we are buying one location across, you know, sometimes a dozen, sometimes, I mean, you know, close to a hundred locations. So equally important to the credit of that tenant is your unit level financials. And here's the reason why is if a tenant starts hurting overall and goes into chapter 11, chapter 11 is not an end all be all. Chapter 11 is a reorganization under yeah. protection of a effectively judicial stewardship, right? And so during that process, they're gonna look at all their assets, all their liabilities. And when it comes to locations, they're gonna say, these ones are making us money and these ones are not, right? And yeah. the ones that are not, they're gonna find ways to get out of those leases, break the contracts, 
but the ones that are making the money, they're absolutely going to hang on to, and those lease contracts are going to stay intact. So that, that really is, is our first thing that we look at even before we look at the overall creditworthiness of the tenant. Yeah. So if you've got a, you know, location that you, you purchased in, in Dallas, say, and, and they're doing really well there, you feel strongly. And the, the chapter 11 happens, they might, they might break their lease in St. Louis, but in Dallas, they're, they're going to keep it because they're strong. And that, that's, that's what you're looking at. Exactly. Yeah. And in most chapter 11s, you know, we've never had a tenant go into it, but we have had some who have had them in the past. And, you know, we look at the locations that we're buying, you know, we'll make sure that those, even if they went through a chapter 11, that they hung on to those. Exactly. Because they, we look for profit centers on a unit level basis, because that at the end of the day, we are buying one piece of real estate or one, you know, finite portfolio of real estate. We want to make sure that those are profit centers for the tenant. Let's talk, um, let's talk, what, could, what, what type of like basis, what, do you, what are you coming in buying these at cap rate wise? Yeah. Um, is there, is there value add that typically happens or is it pretty cut and dry right from the start? Yeah, sounds no, like it's pretty cookie cutter. Great, great questions. Um, you know, so in the single tenant net lease space, the cap rate and the perceived versus actual risk are all tied to what type of tenant. So in general, the two main categories are public credit and private credit. So your public credits, you know, say, uh, say you have an Amazon or a Walmart or Home Depot, like these are big spaces. Your odds of these tenants defaulting are effectively as near zero as you could probably get. However, the flip side is because of that low risk and because they have a public credit rating, your yield is going to be much lower. You're going to buy these at a four or five cap. Your cash flow is going to be, you know, three, four percent a year. And, you know, that's the corresponding yield from a, an investment like that. We, we play in a space of private credit. So we, we actually analyze the credit of these tenants in-house. We have a, a three-man team. All they do is, is you know, analyze credit, look at balance sheets, financial statements, but more so they're interviewing the executive team, the CFO. They're looking at debt loads, who the creditors are, who the stakeholders are, how they're going to use the proceeds from a sale leaseback what the financial picture will look like, you know, on the flip side, once they, once the transaction is complete. And we actually create a credit memo for each of these investments. But in this space, we're able to, you know, from our perspective, capture some of the value between actual and perceived risk of these private credit companies. So we're buying, you know, typically seven, seven and a half cap cash flow is going to be, you know, high single digits during the hold, you know, eight, nine, 10% a year. And then, um, you know, we'll hold for typically about five years when we sell similar to a multifamily investment. Um, we do return of capital plus all profits generated through appreciation. We do a profit split check at the end and, you know, all in full cycle. I think we've exited about 15 deals and, um, you know, averaged high teens in terms of average annual returns on those. Yeah. And that's, that's really, I would call that really good for, the low risk um, type of investment you're doing. Yeah, I, they're different. And, you know, the way I like to explain it, especially compared to say a, a multifamily turnaround, you know, a multifamily, you're, you're buying it and then your work's just getting started, right? 
you know, then, then you're, you're putting that team that, or maybe you're still building the team to work. You're doing usually capital improvements, your, you know, new, new countertops, new cabinets, uh, with the goal that you think you can increase rents, you think you can increase occupancy and effectively turn an underperforming asset into, you know, a strong performer. These are different. These are defensive plays. So most of the work is done up front and you have full occupancy. You have full cash flow coming in from day one. You have built-in rent bumps in the lease. Every year that the rent goes up, usually about 2%, and that gets, uh, you know, basically flows down to our investor group. Yep. And so really these are protection plays. We have a cash flow and asset from day one that's cash flowing nicely. And we really are just hopefully positioning ourselves in a way that that continues in the way, you know, that it has been historically. And for the, you know, roughly five years, we plan to own the real estate. Gotcha. So you're keeping it for about five years. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's then, intentional. And you're selling it to just somebody else that wants to take over because it's a long-term lease. Yep. So you're There's still 15 years on the lease when we sell it. Yeah. yeah tons, so still got a tons ton of time on it. Yeah. A lot of value left on it. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of value there. Um, that's cool. How are you finding these? Like, are the, are these listed by brokers or are you, are you digging them up yourselves? How are you finding these, um, you sale lease back? Yeah. Uh, so the, the majority of sale lease back go through kind of a relatively small network of sale lease back commercial brokers. Um, so, you know, on a national level, Honestly, there's probably less than two dozen, you know, kind of competent players on a national level. Yeah, who who have specialty of wow. being able to do sale lease back transactions. So wow. it's, I mean, it's it's a small group of people that you know. There's probably five or you know, just to use an example, you'll have you know, large take a NAI or CVRE, or, you know, one of these big brokerage firms you know, they will have maybe, you know, a team of three or four maximum who specialize in sale leaseback, you know, so they have massive teams for buying and selling stabilized assets, but the sale leaseback side, it's a bit more of an art in terms of the structure of the deal that kind of requires, you know, really an in-depth specialty knowledge for being able to do that transaction. So to be able to convey the benefits to a potential seller, of why they, you know, why it might be beneficial to them to take a tenant role. And then also you're not just negotiating price, you're negotiating price and lease terms. And what's kind of neat about it is, is those can kind of flow in a way that works best for the seller and the buyer. Just to use an example, hmm. if the seller wants to maximize the proceeds of the sell of the sale, I can go, sure. In return, you're going to pay on the high end of market rent on your lease. Or let's say they say, hey, I'm looking for, you know, kind of a low lease obligation. I want to pay low rent for the next 20 years. We say, okay, uh, I'll, I'll put a, you know, maybe a below market lease in there, a lease rate, but correspondingly, I'm going to want to buy this at a, you know, bottom of the market price. Uh, and so those two kind of levers can, can move. Both can result in the yield that my investors are looking for, and you know they can help serve the needs of the seller who's staying with me. We have a relationship because that seller is becoming my tenant, you know. So there really, I think there's a lot more alignment in this transaction. You know, kind of an incentive for people to play nice, for people to have a fair deal, because ultimately you're staying in that relationship for the next five years minimum, if not more. 
Do you decide how long you're going to keep it based on what you negotiate? Because I would think it would make more sense to, you know, if you, let's say you, you negotiate a really low sales price, it makes sense to probably sell it within, you know, three to five years, where if you negotiate a, a low or a high sales price, but a, but a high cash flow, it probably makes more sense to keep that thing for seven yeah, or 10 years, maybe. It's really case by case, but, you know, we'll, we'll typically try to negotiate for longer term when we can. Just, you know, ultimately, we'd rather leave a little money on the table, but have the security of a longer term lease. Um, it's just kind of the business model that we've built. But, yeah. you know, for us, it, it, it comes down to options, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I would, I would like, you know, in general, these deals keep a pretty strong premium as long as you're selling with more than roughly 10 years on the term. So, you know, my, my target is a 15 year remaining term when I sell, but you know what, if, if the market's in the, in the tank, say five years from now, I've got 10 year fixed rate debt. I've got options. I, I can hold another two, three, four years if I need to still be able to sell comfortably have not have to worry about refinancing. So really, I mean, it gives us more flexibility as an investment group in terms of timing the market truly when, you know, the optimal time is to sell there. That's cool. So Neil, you've been into some, I I would call some pretty cool kind of exciting um, companies. You you were in a startup, which is obviously uh, kind of fun to be a part of. Uh, You watched that business ultimately were you part of it when they were they they ended up shutting down? Were you still part of it? Uh, I was in the in the the final the, the months move out phase. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, mean, I was you're... employee number forty. We went to three hundred and then to zero. So. And then to zero. Yeah. I mean, so you're part of that. That's really cool. You you were part of this private equity uh, company, and now you're part of this uh, single tenant sale leaseback company. So you've been involved in in some really in my opinion, some pretty cool companies. So you've likely learned some valuable lessons along the way. I want to be able to dive in and dig into some of those valuable lessons that you've learned. Uh, What are some, like, give me maybe like two or three kind of big lessons that you've learned that, um, let's do this. Let's, I want to take this two ways. Okay. I want to know Let's talk about a couple of mistakes that you've seen, maybe you've made, even been a part of. Um, let's talk about a couple of mistakes that you've seen these companies make that, um, you know, have, have, have been issues uh, and maybe how have you learned from those? And then we'll go the opposite way. So let's do the mistake first. I want, I want sure. to know what are, what are a couple of things, you don't have to name the company. What are a couple of things <laughs> that, that you've seen that have, have gone sideways? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in general, I think there's this maybe social pressure to grow and to broaden your, you know, the scope of your company's operations. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen it in several different scenarios, everything from the military to, you know, the startup world. And, I, you know, I think one of the biggest pitfalls I've seen is when companies take what they're doing well. And rather than really, I mean, kind of double down on it and kind of grow organically around this core feature that they have, um, you know, to kind of echo what we talked about before, try to try to grow and, and expand and basically take on, you know, a huge amount of uh, additional scope for their business model that, you know, if it's done too quickly, I think, or, or kind of arbitrarily where it doesn't really drive value to your core specialty, 
I think, uh, I think that's when you run into problems and you get spread too thin. You're no longer an expert in all these, you know, additional auxiliary fields. And, you know, suddenly one of the biggest things is, is you lose the confidence of your customers, you know, your customers that used to see you as an expert in what you did now are like, well, they, they do a lot of stuff, you know, they're not great at any of them. And I think that, that to me is, is one of the, you know, driving motivators, you know, at mag to really, I mean, to, to keep our, our focus extremely tight, you know, we're doing it well, we have, you know, strong performance in our portfolio. And, you know, there's tons of shiny objects or squirrels, if you will, you know, to, to go chase in the real estate world and, oh, wouldn't it be fun to do this or that? And, uh, and it probably would be fun, but, you know, you run the risk of, of diluting your, your specialty there. And I think, you know, from an investor side and from a customer side, people see an incredible amount of value when you have the, the focus to, to stay in your lane and the focus to do that specialty extremely well and better than anyone else in the market. Yeah, that's, that's really valuable. Very easy, like you said, to chase that shiny object or to, <laughs> to go after the squirrel. Um, oh, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm tempted all the time, right? You just, yep. you see these fun things. And uh, I mean, the other day, we, we got into an internal discussion about tokenization of, of real estate investing. It was fascinating, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it might be a little premature for, you know, to start taking, uh, you know, Bitcoin on, on, you know, basically multi-investor equity funding, but you know, it's, it's, it's good to know what's out there without necessarily jumping in with two feet on, on any, you know, brand new idea that comes out there. Yeah. And if you're really wanting to chase the shiny object, as we've already said, find the people that are already doing that. There you go. And yep. then invest with or partner with them yeah. instead of leverage that expertise. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, acquire them or, you or know, there's a lot of ways yeah. that you can pull in that, that expertise without necessarily having to go through all the learning stumbles yeah. to get there. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, so on the same kind of token. I mean, we talked about the, the, the mistake and obviously the, how do you not do that? Let's talk about some of the, I don't know, some of the strategies or some of the things that you take from these companies that say, wow, the, this is how you become successful. What are, what are a couple things that you can give to us? This is how, this is why this company is successful. This is, these, these yeah. are their habits. This is what they do. I, I've actually found over the years, I've been able to take a lot more from the flying world into investing and mm. startup life than I ever expected to. Um, and so just to, before I jump into your question there, you know, on the flying world, I was, I was flying a, a multi-crew aircraft. We had a, a crew of about six or seven, depending on the configuration of a bunch of different experts. We had, you know, two pilots, a navigator, a flight engineer, load masters, systems experts, weapons officers, all this stuff that really not only did you have to fly the plane as a, a pilot, but you were also the aircraft commander, effectively kind of a project manager of all these different skill sets working in harmony to effectively get the mission done. And the way we would do this very well is that, I mean, extremely tight uh, adherence to checklists and to repeatability. And that, that repeatability comes from the, in my opinion, the inherent mistakes and 
errors that you will make as a team when you're, when you're doing things ad hoc and changing quite often. And what's neat about the investment space is I find if you structure it right and you, you really set up a, a repeatable system for yourself, you know, to kind of use that, that e-myth example you, you mentioned earlier. I love that book, by the way. And, um, you know, just to set up repeatability and systems, you're able to, in my opinion, remove a huge amount of operational risk that you might not even realize you would have taken on as a team by, you know, kind of having this chaotic ensemble dance, you know, to get to the, the outcome each time. And, and that, I mean, really, you know, flying is designed to remove as much predictable known risk as possible. You're, you're still going to have risk in every time you take the plane in the air. And of course, you know, combat is a whole nother variable, but you can remove, you know, things like a weather review, things like, you know, systems adherence, making sure you're operating the plane, right. Making sure different crew positions are interacting in a predictable proven way. And I've tried to carry over as many of those systems and consistencies uh, from that world to the investment space as possible. So we, we have a lot of checklist discipline, if you will. And, um, you know, every deal, we kind of start from the top and we work our way down and we check off each item to make sure we're getting them in, in time. And, you know, in, in my opinion, we're able to reduce a lot of the operational risk of putting together a deal by doing that. Yeah, I love it, man. That's, that's great. It's, it's funny how you can relate some of the earlier experience, you know, flying a plane yeah. What's it really got to do with business? Right? <laughs> but then you start to really break it down and go, oh, yeah, a lot of the stuff is kind of the same. Yeah. Um, a huge amount of carryover. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So that's cool. Um, man, I could keep going with a lot of questions that I have for you, but uh, we should probably kind of start to wrap up here. What's a favorite book that you can give to our listeners? I, I'm. I don't necessarily have favorites, but I'm reading one right now that I enjoy. Uh, it's called uh, Why We Sleep. Hmm. Um, it's by, by a guy, Matthew, I forgot his last name, uh, but Matthew something, uh, Why We Sleep. And I've, I've always found sleep science fascinating because of how impacted on a personal basis I am when, when I get good rest versus not. And, you know, the whole circadian rhythm flying thing has always been you know, a, a strong influence in my life. I still travel quite often, different time zones and really understanding to a, a kind of a scientific level of how and how and why your body sleeps the way it does. I found directly improves the, you know, basically output of my, my waking hours in a, in a very noticeable way. So um, I enjoy it. Um, so I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in what happens in that third of your life that, <laughs> you know, your eyes are shut and, you know, what does your body do in that? And how does that affect your waking hours? Yeah. It's amazing when you don't get enough sleep, it's, it's almost like you've had a few too many to drink, right? I mean, you're, oh, you're set, 100%. To, to me, it's all, it's not, maybe it's not exactly the same, but it's like, you're just foggy in your brain. It's just like you're getting buzzed, you know, it's like, <laughs> it, it, seriously. And, and I've noticed it more in myself. Like as I'm getting older, I, I need my sleep. Like I yeah. have to have my sleep. And if I don't, I'm just like, just not productive. Like I should be, Yeah, and I would, I would equate it to it's almost like you're having a few too many to drink. Like, no, I, I agree. My, my wife got me this Fitbit recently 
and I, so I'm not being paid by Fitbit, but, uh, <laughs> but I, but I like it. It's uh it's, you know, a little smartwatch here and it gives you an objective score and it actually breaks down the different levels of your circadian rhythm throughout the, the night. And it'll show how much deep sleep, how much REM sleep, how much light sleep, how much time awake. And it, yeah. it's really, it's fascinating to see. And then to kind of match that with how you feel, I mean, it's very close. Um, so I, I've been experimenting with that over the last few months and, you know, really I, it, it's a good motivator for me to go to bed, you know, say no to that last Netflix episode and just say, you know what, I, I'm going to do better tomorrow with an extra, you know, 42 minutes here, but yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to check Facebook before I go to bed. Like, I'm <laughs> exactly. just going to go to bed. Like, I need yeah. to that's good. Easier said um, than done sometimes. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you like to give back? I, you know, a lot of my time goes honestly into my kid, um, you know, trying to, trying to work kind of through that, that portal, if you will, you know, working with other kids, uh, you know, other parents, you know, he's, he's at that age right now where that's taken a, a lot of my, we'll call it auxiliary energy. How old is, um, how old is your kid? Uh, he's nine. So okay. he's, yeah. he's a, a good yeah. kid uh, growing up in the city here, but you know, we try to try to match, you know, city stuff with, you know, we, we do this, um, it's called a uh, fuff. It's a weird acronym, but friends of the urban forest. Uh, so we, we plant trees on the weekends when we can at, out here in San Francisco and, um, you know, find, find ways to try to do something that doesn't directly benefit you personally. And, you know, whether it's volunteerism or parks or, you know, just spending time with, with, uh, you know, a cause outside of yourself. And, you know, I think that's, that's been a a good focus both for him and, you know, indirectly myself recently. That's cool. That's cool. All right, man. Well, last question before we wrap up, what are your, what, what would be your three pillars of wealth creation? And just to kind of clarify that, because everybody gets confused what I mean. And I mean, really in any way. So you can come up with the physical things, you know, that, that deal with wealth, or you can give, you could come up with the more of the philosophical. So either way, but what are your three pillars of wealth creation? I would say the first one is going to be a more direct uh, and that's going to be cash flow. I think, I mean, ca- cash flow, when you focus on cash flow, and I, I'm going to expand that to be, you know, really any sort of performing asset, an asset that is working for you today uh, mm-hmm. at some level, even if it's just, you know, a minuscule amount, if it's producing a net benefit, and not a, a net debt or liability in your life, um, you know, whether it be a financial investment or a friendship or anything like that. I think that is probably the number one thing I look for in terms of where I, I invest time and energy into. Um, the second one, I'd say something that's interesting to you. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, it's really hard for me to stay dedicated to something that I'm not personally stimulated by or engaged by or driven by, uh, you know, you, you could do something that you're supposed to let, you know, I could eat kale all day long because I hate kale. I'm just not going to eat it. You know, (laughs) I, you know, and if, if, (laughs) exactly. Right. And you know, you, you have to, I mean, there's enough, there's enough ways that you can invest in yourself financially, um, you know, personally, all these levels, find something that you like. Uh, and if you don't pivot, 
uh, and just say, you know what, I, I tried this. I just genuinely don't like this and that's okay. And recognize it and move on to just something that you do genuinely enjoy. Um, and then, you know, the third piece, let's see, pillars of wealth creation. Um, you know, you, you talked about the, you know, not to sound cliche, but, um, you know, I think just finding something beyond yourself. So, you know, for me right now is, is my kid, um, you know, I'm investing, you know, I, I recently married my German wife and her family doesn't speak English. And so I'm investing in that relationship by, by learning German. And I, I study 40 minutes a day German and it, it's hard. It's a difficult language, <laughs> but uh, you know that I think you know finding something that you and can invest in that doesn't directly impact yourself, whether it be you know your bank account or your character. Uh, but I think you know with that, that indirect possibility, you know, to me, I, I think that's a, a great way to a great way to spend part of your day every day, and you know, I think long term it, it reaps a lot of benefits. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Good stuff, man. Um, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to love to hear your thoughts on on the show. Any questions, comments, or you know, if anyone wants to chat more about directly in investing into industrial real estate, um, just reach out. You can shoot me an email, Neil N E I L at magcp. That's M A G C P dot com or uh, or check out our website. Um, we've got some more information on industrial sale lease back net lease. That's www.magcp.com. Cool. Good stuff. This was fun. Uh, I love hearing about something fairly unique and, and uh, you know, you know, this world is, or at least I know this world. Some people that are listening probably didn't even know this world was even out there, but yeah. you know, you hear about all, there's so many different ways to get involved in real estate. There's so many different interesting, even within industrial space. It's not just a simple, like you're going to buy an industrial property, it's even multifamily. You're not going to just buy a multifamily property. Mm-hmm. There's so many different niches yep. within that you can be an expert in it's, it's just so fascinating so cool so it's fun to have somebody like you on that's talking about something that we haven't ever talked about on the show i've done over 400 episodes and we've never talked about this so there we go <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool so i appreciate you joining us yeah it's it's been fun and uh man you have a fantastic rest of the day thanks Todd. you too Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. 
and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go up to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.